0: Today's program is sponsored by Reformation Sites, an easy-to-use website platform helping Reformed churches reach out more effectively. Listen at the end of the podcast for a special offer. Welcome to Mortification of Spin, a casual conversation about things that count, with Carl Truman and Todd Pruitt. Mortification of Spin is a weekly podcast from the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. Let's join this week's conversation.
1: Well, you are listening to Mortification of Spin. My name is Todd Pruitt. I'm the pastor of Covenant Presbyterian Church in the beautiful Shenandoah Valley in Virginia. And I'm joined, as always, with my uh, co-host, Carl Truman, um, who is professor at Grove City College in beautiful western Pennsylvania. And today we're very uh, happy to have on as our guest, uh, Kevin DeYoung. Kevin DeYoung is the pastor of Christ Covenant Church, which is a PCA church in Matthews, North Carolina, uh, right near uh, Charlotte. Uh, He's also assistant professor of systematic theology. At uh, the Reformed Theological Seminary uh, at, their, at their Charlotte uh, campus. He's also uh, author of many uh, very helpful books on any number of topics, and uh, it's, always, uh, it's always a safe bet to recommend books from Kevin DeYoung. And uh, we are pleased to have him on with us today. Welcome, Kevin. Thanks so much for joining us.
2: Very good to be here. Uh, Long time listener, first time caller. <laughs> <laughs>
1: nice, well done. So, <laughs> yeah.
2: I got to ask you, Kevin. Uh, I mean, some years ago,
3: I, I was preaching in Dubai of all places, and I'm staying with this couple, and they say to me, uh, "You know, do you eat anything other than tater tots?" And I'm thinking that's <laughs> a really weird question to ask. And then the penny drops, and oh, you had Kevin DeYoung
2: staying here last year. <laughs> yeah, that's probably true. Has, has
3: the diet improved, and how do you avoid rickets? Uh, based on what you
2: eat uh, no the diet hasn't improved and yes i when i was in dubai it's actually gotten worse because since i was in dubai uh, i was diagnosed with celiac so i've always been picky and now i have an actual reason why i can't eat some things but uh you you would be shocked at how little i survive on lucky (laughs) charms um, nachos, Mountain Dew. <laughs> I mean, it's, uh, lucky chums. But I go, f- I go on a run almost every day. I ran six miles this morning, so I don't nice. know. If some- something is is giving me. The Holy Spirit energy. It's the lucky charm.
1: It's the lucky charm. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Great.
2: Well, I want to kick off, uh, Kevin. First of all, by just saying,
3: as you know, I'm OPC, not PCA. Read this report. Very grateful for it because whatever the PCA does, you know, in the OPC, we're aware of it. And and any denomination that produces a helpful report on a hot button issue is a help to
1: all denominations one of the things i didn't say was that kevin is a was a member of the ad interim committee for the the pca in producing um, what i believe is an excellent study committee report oh, on human we sexuality we, we did, did not say that, that. <laughs> on, on human sexuality kevin was was a was a member of that that committee that was appointed back at, at our general assembly in 2019 so that that's kind of what we're going to delve into a little bit so carl there you go
3: thanks for that clarification todd anyway Kevin, incredibly grateful for it. Uh, But I wonder, before we get into some of the the issues that that report deals with, it would be helpful to our listeners to have you explain what exactly is uh, a General Assembly committee report, uh, how you get to sit on the committee that produces it, and what sort of status do these reports have? What are they intended to do within a denomination?
2: Yeah, it's a good question. And Todd's been around the PCA a lot longer than I have. And There were a number of overtures asking for a study committee on the sexuality issues that had been uh, provoked by the, the Revoice Conference and all the controversy around that. So when the General Assembly approves the creation of an ad interim committee, that just means it's not a permanent committee. It's going to do its work and then it's going to cease to exist. And then it's the responsibility of the moderator to appoint seven members to this committee, ruling elders and teaching elders. It needs to be a mix of both. All of these things have to be something of a consensus document. You're trying to get people who represent some sort of constituency. You know, that sounds very political, but that's how these things work. You need Mm -hmm. to get people who have at least some sort of different leanings, perhaps, so that when the committee produces its report, their best-case scenario has some wide-ranging appeal and at least some theological authority. Now the formal authority for these study committees, they're not binding. Um, You can, as a study committee, you know, make all sorts of recommendations, and when you make a recommendation, then that goes on the floor of the GA and can be debated and can be amended. And so, uh, you know, our, our report, at least as it is now, uh, you know, we don't have any formal recommendations, but it will be presented and explained and received at the General Assembly. So when these seven members get together, you have a convener, and then you uh, choose amongst yourselves someone who's going to be the the moderator, the chairman of the committee. Brian Chappell was the, the moderator of it. And... He's a good leader, and he did a good job leading us. He got us uh, assigned tasks right away. He got us meeting early and often, so we met monthly from August until you know the report came out, and probably every other one of those was in person. We'd fly to Atlanta, and then the other ones were over Zoom. We're spending our lives on Zoom now, mm-hmm. and uh, had lots of assignments in between, and then you go back and forth and. You know, really, I know we're not here to talk about the mechanics and the inner workings of the committee, but I, I, I do want to say that I think all of us were you know pleasantly surprised. I don't think we were expecting some nightmares, but there was a really good spirit on the committee. Certainly, some people lean in some different directions and have maybe different things that they're mindful of as dangers. And yet, when it came to actually figuring out the theology of it, this is where our confessions in the Reformed tradition is so helpful because the answers are there. The answers are there in the Reformed tradition. And there's no minority report. There's no dissenting opinion. You know, there might be in some of the other, some of the papers of the report, some variations, but really, especially on the the meat of the report, those 12 statements, we looked at those with a fine tooth comb and there was, uh, you know, a, a real strong consensus and unanimous consensus that this is a good reflection of biblical and reformed theology.
3: Can I just comment there, Kevin, two things. One, I think the fact that the process has been so peaceful on the committee, as you describe that's great in an era where really we're very polarized and it seems increasingly hard to have any kind of constructive discussion on any of the really central cultural Mm -hmm. issues at the moment. It's very encouraging to hear that. And secondly, I said this to you beforehand, and it sounds like an odd compliment, but I was impressed by the blandness Mm -hmm. of the report in terms of its language and approach. And I think that's good because it means you can actually hear the arguments. You're not being carried away by the rhetoric. So, Throw it over to Todd now, but I wanted to say the the consensus aspect and the blandness aspect, I think, are two things that have implications beyond this report for all of mm-hmm. us as we look on and see how this issue has been
1: Yeah. You know. Yeah. I I tell you, uh, given the angst over this issue, and I I do want to point out for those who may not realize, uh, this report on on sexuality isn't about sexuality in general, but it really zeroes in on what has been kind of a central debate in in the PCA the last several years over the theology of revoice and and so-called side B homosexuality. And uh, the debate in the PCA is not over gay marriage. We're agreed on that. The debate is not over homosexual uh, activity. We're agreed on that. The the, the debate is more nuanced, but still very important going into the status of of same-sex desires, et cetera, et cetera. And so the the committee really zeroed in on, on those issues and produced 12 statements of affirmation. Part of each statement dealt with a theological affirmation And then the other part of of each one of the statements dealt with kind of pastoral implications. And oftentimes what happens in that sort of setup is is we'll give something really good with the right hand, and then we'll immediately take it away with the left hand. I was pleasantly surprised to see that that does not happen um, in this committee's report. There is a harmony between the theological affirmation and the pastoral encouragements that go along there. There's a real harmony between them. And the brevity of the heart of the report is a a great strength of it as well. So, again, um, very well done on that. Kevin, I wanted to just zero in on on a few uh, things that I think were particularly helpful and needful. All 12 of the affirmations are helpful and needful. The first two affirmations probably aren't very controversial at all in the PCA dealing with, uh, you know, the status of marriage and that kind of thing. But, but where we drill down into the debate over revoice theology, if I can just kind of sum it up that way, it has to do with number four, which deals with desire, uh, number five, which deals with concupiscence, number six, which, which deals with uh, temptation. And I, and I wonder, uh, Kevin, just on affirmation number four, um, part of the, the, the real debate here within the PCA is what is the status of desire? We know that a desire can be sinful, but but part of the debate has been you know there's a same sex attraction that can be morally neutral, or in some cases we've heard uh, even morally good. How did you navigate that on on the committee to come up with such a good statement, a clear statement on desire and the status of the, the moral status of desire, if I can put it that
2: way? I think again, our confessions in our reform tradition are really helpful on this because although same-sex attraction was not the issue, the best minds of the church have thought a lot over the years about how to categorize these desires. So I, I've, I've been reading through Shedd's theology. Uh, I try to read through some big systematic theology each year. I've been reading through Shedd, and we didn't quote this in the report, but he makes this you know, important distinction that there are desires, inclinations, affections, and there are volitional choices, but both of these in traditional Reformed faculty psychology are motions of the will. And so the confusion sometimes is as we experience certain desires, they don't feel like a motion of the will. Mm. And so, you know, Shed will say, they can be voluntary without yet feeling volitional. That is, they are self-determined. That means we have moral culpability for them, even if we do not feel as if or perceive that we have yet made a choice. And Calvin says the same thing, that, you know, the will can be both voluntary and in servitude. It's mm-hmm. in bondage to sin. And so, with same-sex desires in particular, uh, many people describe them as unbidden, not something Mm. you woke up and said, I choose to have this desire. But if we take it out of the realm of same-sex desires, all of us have desires that come to us unbidden. You know, a married heterosexual man, he's walking down the beach and it's a hot day and People are dressing like Americans, not like Brits. Brits probably wear just big burlap sacks or whatever when they're whipped like, <laughs> so. My brother always black
3: <laughs> socks and open-toe sandals. That's yeah, yeah. standard British male. Uh, uh, yes, be
2: beautiful. I'm sure knickers and whatnot. <laughs> but uh, you know, a man is going to have uh, unbidden desires that feel to him pre-volitional and yet is responsible for them as an outworking, as an expression of original sin. So, those, and and here's the key thing. And you talked about concupiscence in statement five. The Roman Catholic Church has a very different understanding that these concupiscence is the tinderbox of the soul and that you can manfully resist them and they don't become sin to you. And so, you know, they got lots of weird things. You uh, read in Lombard <laughs> and others who. You know, almost you're heroic for putting yourselves in these positions of extreme sexual temptation, and yeah. it's just concupiscence, and you yet haven't given into it. And Reformed theology has always been uniform in understanding that those, and in the Westminster Confession says, all the motions and parts thereof mm. are themselves sinful. Uh, you know, up. Uh, I'll stop the monologue there because you're going to get into temptation. I think there's some important things to differentiate those desires because Mm -hmm. a lot of the angst, I think, on the the side B side is, well, if that's the case, then I'm made to feel like I am constantly in a state of rebellion and I feel uh, constantly put down and ashamed. You're telling me that every moment of my, existence is somehow sinful before the Lord Mm. and my brief response would be that's probably the experience of most Christians if we really understood our desires at every moment and yet God is pleased when we don't give into those desires though those desires themselves are sinful the confession is clear that not every sin is the same right and so to withstand that temptation though the temptations themselves may be sinful is an important part of our moral walk and our discipleship in christ so there is we use like you know there's moral space or there's moral mm-hmm. difference even though the desires themselves are sinful
1: yeah so what would you say to someone and this goes to the um the statement in, in the report number six on temptation, what would you say to someone, for instance, on the side B uh, side, uh, who, who says, but, but it's, it's not a sin to be tempted? H- how do you respond to that?
2: Right, and before I was on the GA study committee, we had a, a similar study committee in Central Carolina Presbytery. We did more specifically, we were tasked with address revoice, mm-hmm. summarize revoice. And I was actually glad. I think that's, Carl, some of what you're saying, the blandness of this report. We made a conscious decision. We're not going to try to summarize what Revoice says. Then, yeah. you, then you get into, you didn't listen to this talk, and that person doesn't mean that. And right. Okay, let's, let's just try to present a positive articulation of reform theology. Yeah. So uh, on the Central Carolina report, that was our major sticking point, was trying to wrestle with temptation. Because it's tricky, because there, there is a type of temptation which is not itself sin. Right. We, we have to recognize that because Christ himself was tempted and he was without sin. But when you look at how Calvin and others understand James chapter 1, that's the key text, and you realize that the, the Greek for temptation or for testing are the same thing, you realize there is a type of temptation which comes to us externally as a trial, as an affliction, which is not in itself sinful. And yet there are those temptations which arise from within as a part of indwelling sin for which we are morally culpable and are themselves sin. So it takes a, you all know this, you're smarter guys than I am. You know that a big part of theology is learning to have the right categories mm. and learning over the years, the very finely tuned distinctions that theologians and confessional documents have given to us in order to make sense of these complex phenomenon. And they have real world pastoral implications.
1: Yeah, definitely. Kevin, one of the things that I was very pleased to see on the report was Statement number eight on, on impeccability. I wonder if you do two things for us here. One is to just kind of briefly explain what we mean when we talk about Christ's impeccability. And and as a part of that, let's say, you know, you're a theologian and a pastor. How would you process this statement? Let's say you overhear me counseling with someone um, who, who their big struggle in life is same sex attraction. And they really, really struggle internally um, with, with, sinful lusts in that category. And you hear me say to that person, you know what Jesus, because he was tempted and in all ways without sin, that must've been one of his struggles uh, as well. So you're in good company and you, because the Bible tells us he was tempted in all ways like us yet without sin, that must've been one of his temptations as well was to struggle with same sex attraction. So I'm, I'm assuming uh, you'd pull me aside at one point and say, brother, let, let me talk to you about that a little bit. What, what would you say?
2: Yeah, and it's a very important question because that is the sort of thing that people may give and they may not know that they're, they're deviating from some important theological mm-hmm. conclusions and may have a desire to really just help a brother or sister, and yet that's a, that's a, mis- that'd be a mistake. Mm-hmm. Impeccability means that not only did Christ not sin, he did not have the possibility of sinning that strikes some people on the face of it as disappointing. How, how I want a vulnerable, authentic Christ. Well, there's, there's a difference, though, in saying that an army can be attacked and an army can be defeated. And so we're saying Christ can be attacked, but he, there was no possibility of him being defeated. And there, there was nothing inside of him to receive temptation to meet with sinful desires Mm -hmm. and so the distinction again to put it very simply between those temptations that arise externally those that arise from within us internally so you know if somebody says hey kevin i'm just using the beach example it's warm it's summer okay hey kevin let's let's go to the beach, and let's see who's there, and people aren't going to be dressed, they're not wearing bulky sweaters, etc. Maybe there's an external temptation right there, you know, there's no thought in my head, there's just, let's go do this, and it's a external temptation to go do something that would be unwise and lead to sin, versus at the beach, walking down, seeing people that's landing on my brain and my heart eliciting illicit desires that's the sort of thing that christ did not experience but at the same time we want to be clear he faced temptation so owen says he experienced the suffering part not the sinning part of temptation so he's able to sympathize with us and this is we have a a very uh you know therapeutic understanding of sympathy i i am Going, I'm sure going to urge everybody to read Carl's book that's coming out this fall about sexuality and sexual revolution where he deals with this. And so we're importing certain categories, I think, mm-hmm. modern categories into Hebrews 2 and Hebrews 4 and what it means for Christ to really sympathize with us yeah. um, that aren't necessary for him to be the, a sympathetic high priest.
1: That's good,
3: yeah. Kevin, to bring this sort of back to, I mean, not that that wasn't practical, it was, but it's going to be a lot of people listening to the program. They're not pastors. They don't have pastoral positions in their church. They're just Christians. Why should they read this report? And what Practical help will it be for them uh, if this is something they're struggling with themselves, or as I suppose many of us now, particularly, I mean, if you teach in education, you, you you come across this all the time, having interactions with fellow believers who are struggling with this. What's what's the value of this report for the ordinary man, woman in the in the ecclesiastical street?
2: Mm-hmm. I think there are several values. One, we tried to give those finely tuned categories and uh, tried to pull from the best of the reformed tradition, especially those 12 statements. And you look down at the footnotes and can help to map on, It's it can be really encouraging to see other people have thought about these things mm. before. Not the mm-hmm. exact issue, perhaps, of same-sex attraction, but thought about these things before. So I think it provides some theological clarity. Um, I, I've been gratified. I know other people on the committee have, you know, I'm sure there's people that don't like it, but We've heard from people that you know, really appreciate the theology. We've often heard, also heard from people who themselves struggle with same-sex attraction who said, this was helpful. I, I, I found this clarifying. And then the other thing I would say, we really worked hard, I know it's kind of cliche, but for it to be presented in a pastoral way. So each of those 12 statements, you know, we didn't want to just do affirmations and denials, so we did an affirmation and then a nevertheless. And often that nevertheless is trying to anticipate Uh, how someone might misread the affirmation we're making. So if we talk about sanctification and how God changes us, we want to make clear the nevertheless, that we still wrestle with indwelling sin throughout our life, and that it takes a long process. And we don't expect that uh, these desires automatically go away, or in a lifetime that they will completely go away, though God could do that. So, uh, and this is where i think the the committee really worked well together and was helped by having you know different people who were sensitive to different dangers that i hope it produces a good kind of document that helps people to feel heard in the best sense of the word but also spoken to from from our confessions and from our tradition so i think it can be clarifying and our hope Carl, just as you said, was especially this, the meat of the report there, those 12 statements, that Sessions would read it, lay people could read it, um, they don't need a graduate degree, they don't need to set aside two hours of their day, they can yeah. take 15, 20 minutes, read through it, and hopefully be helped with some clarifying theology and also the sort of pastoral nuance that makes it feel like this could really be helpful for somebody yeah. as they're pursuing Christ and trying to live in obedience to Him.
1: Yeah, and I would just say, Carl, before before I hit it back to you, pastors, this is something you can place in the hands of your lay people, and they will be helped by it. I, I would encourage also pastors to think about teaching a Sunday school class on the subject and using the study committee report, using those twelve uh, affirmations and nevertheless as 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 kind of the content for each lesson would be really helpful for your church, and uh, and then you know. Pastors, use it at the presbytery level. There, there are ways that we can use this uh, that, that would be very helpful. But I be, when I read it, I immediately began thinking about a Sunday school class. Um, it, it's really pastoral in that way. So
3: Yes, uh, I think appropriate, Kevin, to thank you for the work that you and the other members of the committee did on this. When I looked at the names of the people on the committee, seeing, I think, Tim Keller there. Uh, Derek Halverson, president of Covenant College, these are busy men, uh, and to give the time necessary to producing a good report uh, is not an easy thing. And I think uh, you've left the rest of us in your debt on this. It's extremely helpful, and I reiterate what Todd says. I think this would be an, an excellent uh, document uh, to use both as a framework and as supporting material for a Sunday school class. So thanks very much for that.
2: Yeah, and thank
3: thanks. To our audience for listening, please visit our website, mortificationofspin.org. If you are led by the Spirit, so to do. Please feel free to make a donation via the button there. It's the one point in the week where I... Get in touch with my Pentecostal side. Uh, And you can also enter for a chance to win a copy of Kevin's book, What Does the Bible Really Teach About Homosexuality? A book he wrote some years ago. It didn't come out of the uh, study report. It lies in the background of the study report, but really an excellent uh, introduction to the important issues that all Christians need to reflect upon from a biblical perspective. For this issue is not going to go away any time in my lifetime, and probably not in your lifetime either. So please visit the website, enter for a chance to win this book. If you don't win the book, buy a copy and buy an extra copy to give away. Until next time, all that remains is to thank you uh, for listening. Thank our guest, Kevin DeYoung, and say we look forward to being with you next week. Whether life's disabilities Left you outcast, for leader teased Rejoice and love yourself today Cause baby, you were born no this way No of
0: violence straight up transgender life I'm on the right track, baby
3: To be licensed in the OPC, you have to have done three semesters, I think, Mm -hmm. at a seminary. And I hadn't done that. And this was like three days before the presbytery meeting. So I pointed out that I taught at a seminary for that point for about eight years. Right. Which the classic answer came that it would have been okay if I'd sat in my own classes. But the fact I was teaching meant (laughs) that I didn't strictly qualify. (laughs) The first question at Presbytery was, tell me about your education. And I said, well, I did my PhD in theology at the University of Aberdeen. that was founded in 1495 to train <laughs> men for the ministry before your country was even in Egypt. <laughs> <laughs> and that, that, uh, that cut off the objection. at the.
4: Uh <laughs> so you'd like to do more with your church's website, especially in this day and age when keeping your members and visitors informed is so important. Hi, Eric here from Reformed Media. I've developed Reformation Sites as an easy-to-use website platform to help Reformed churches reach out more effectively. With many beautiful mobile-ready designs to choose from, helpful services, and useful features such as Sermon Manager, online bulletins, courses, and notifications, your church's website will be ready the next time a major event happens. It also integrates with other popular services like Sermon Audio, Online donations and live streaming with pricing that fits into any church budget. To celebrate the launch of Reformation Sites, we're offering free basic setup for a limited time. The first 30 signups may also receive a free wordmark logo designed for their church. Go to reformationsites.com to get started today or call me, Eric, at 561 900 6886 to explore the possibilities. Reformation sites, church websites for a modern reformation.